1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, verse 2, as we continue through our verse-by-verse study of uh, 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 2. So let's pray together. Father, we're thankful to be back in the sanctuary, and we understand that church is not the building. It's a joy to be together with those that are with us online and in the sanctuary. We know that you're with us. We ask that you would manifest your presence, that you would speak to us, that we would have ears to hear and and hearts to understand, that you'd really bless this time, multiply this time. Would you provide encouragement? And we thank you and we praise you in in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 2, now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. Paul is addressing the church of Corinth and really having to set a lot of things in order that have gotten out of order. Here he encourages the church that they are doing a good job of continuing the traditions, continuing in those things that we're to practice as the body of Christ. And Paul's being gracious here because as we're going to see really quickly, they're not doing it very well. Things have gotten to a place where Things need to be fixed. Things need to be corrected. And the first issue is that women are coming in and they're not covering their heads. And we'll see the cultural impact that 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 would have for women at that time. And then the second is the communion table. The Lord's Supper was all out of whack and they weren't considering each other as they were taking communion together. So verse 3, but I want you to know the head of every man is Christ and the head of every woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. So Paul is using this as an introduction to to deal with women not wearing head coverings in the church of Corinth. But first he lays this groundwork of how God has set up order inside of the Trinity, and also he has set up order inside of marriages, biblical marriages. So this is fascinating when we look at the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're equal They're all God. They're a unity to where we have one God, not three distinct persons. But there is an order inside of the Trinity. And it says that that God is the head of the Father. And that's, or God is the head of Christ. So when it refers to God, it's referring to the Father. When we look at the life of Christ, he always took his marching orders from the Father. He submitted himself to to the Father. The Holy Spirit's always pointing people to Jesus. That's the role of the Holy Spirit. So God has put that order inside of the Trinity, but for Jesus to submit to the Father doesn't mean he's inferior to, to the Father. Inside of marriage, God calls husbands to be submitted to Christ. We are to have Christ as our head. That's something we need to focus on and go, Jesus, are you my head? Are you my Lord? Am I surrendered to you? Do you have supremacy and preeminence in my life? And then wives, your husband is your head. He's your your covering. You follow his leadership and come underneath his direction. In verse 4, every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. So, Paul's saying here, if as you pray, men, and, and you're praying before the Lord, if your, your head is covered, then you're dishonoring God. You're dishonoring your, your head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head or her husband. For that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. 
But it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or to be shaved. Let her be covered. Now, I want you to understand where we're going with this. If you want to, you can take a quick look at verse 16 where Paul says, But if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. This doesn't seem to be a doctrine that Paul is giving to all churches for all time. But because of the cultural things that are happening in the church of Corinth, he is addressing them. However, there is a principle here for us to understand. There's this principle of making sure as we gather together that we are serving one another and we're not putting our own interests beyond the benefit of our brothers and, and sisters in Christ. So let me try to explain this is there were temple prostitutes in the city of Corinth that would have their heads uncovered and it would be a sign that I am uh, available. Inside of this current culture, it would be very offensive and stumbling for women in public and in church to not have their heads covered. And culture is very interesting, isn't it? In Uganda, it's very inappropriate to have your knees showing. To have your knees showing is very seductive and communicates the wrong thing, right? But there's other parts of the human anatomy that to us would be very offensive, but those are very visible in the Ugandan culture. So, so even inside of cultures, what's offensive in this area or what communicates the wrong thing in this area? So for the church of Corinth, this would be a big deal. Women are coming in and they're not considering one another and they're not considering their husband and and the Lord by not having their their heads covered. So we thought about this morning of changing things at RMC and you know start handing out head coverings but we felt like masks were enough you know it's masks are will do as the the head covering. So I don't think that God is calling churches through all time to for women to have to wear uh, head coverings You know, and it is, I think, okay for men to be able to go ahead and pray with a a hat on. I think God sees the heart. That's definitely the emphasis of of our church. I I grew up in a church where if somebody had a hat on in church, they were asked to to take their hat off. If they wouldn't uh, take their hat off, then they'd have to leave. And we grew up in that church till I was like 12. And I, I remember on a few occasions, people came into church that didn't know church rules, right? They're unbelievers, and they didn't know the customs of this particular church, and they'd have their, their hat on, and then they'd be asked to take it off or leave, and I, I was, that didn't resonate with me, right? And when we switched churches when I was 13 years old, we, we went to a church, and I'll never forget the first time that I was there on a Sunday, the pe- youth pastor was teaching, and he was sitting on a stool with shorts and a hat on teaching God's word. And I was like, man, this has really got my attention, right? And we really want to focus on the main thing, which is Christ. We really want to focus on on our hearts before the Lord. But the principle of this, of anything in my clothing, if it is causing another believer uh, to stumble, I want to value that believer over my clothing. Or if there's something in my clothing that's showing disrespect to my spouse, I want to honor my spouse and ultimately honor the Lord. Verse 7, for a man indeed ought not to cover his head since he is the image and the glory of God, but a woman is the glory of man. 
So the reason why a man wouldn't cover his head in prayer is because he's the image and the glory of God. Which is interesting about this is Orthodox Jews, the men, cover their heads in prayer with the yarmulke, the small hat that's placed on the the back of their heads. Uh, If you go to the Western Wall or the Wailing Wall or see pictures of it, you, you see that. And the reason that they do that is because Moses covered his head when he was leaving prayer with God because the reflection of God's glory was fading. So he didn't want people to see that, so he covered his head. But here Paul is saying for men to not cover their heads in prayer. Then it goes on to say that the woman is the glory of man. What this means is literally the outshining or the reflection of the man. Men, I think that we would agree that that our wives are so valued by us. They're, They're our glory. If you find yourself uh, frustrated, men, with your wife, the truth of this is your wife is the reflection of you. Is the reflection of you. So it could be that there's a lack in our lives, a lack in our servant leadership, and that's being reflected on our wife's countenance. Right? We all have our own personal responsibility before the Lord, but your wife is the reflection of you. She's the outshining. She's, she's the glory of you. And these are the principles that, that we hold on to inside of this context of, of head coverings. For man is not for woman, but woman for man. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. Please don't just read those two verses, all right? Read the whole chapter. For this reason, women ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. What is this all about? Now why are the angels brought into this issue of of head coverings? We know that angels watch believers, watch the the church with interest. They saw Jesus in his glory, saw him in his incarnation and his crucifixion. They see Christ living inside of us. So when women are operating inside of the authority that God has given to them by honoring God, by honoring their husbands— that's an encouragement to angels. When, when men are honoring God, that's, a, that's an encouragement to angels. We know the fallen angels, Satan being the, the chief, where did they get out of line? Is they chose to be disobedient to God. They chose to walk outside of that authority that God had given to them. So Paul's saying the angels are watching your, your submission unto the Lord. Verse 11, nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. For as a woman came from man, even so man also comes through woman, but all things are from God. So verses 11 and 12 balance out verses 8 and 9, where we see that first, the first woman, Eve, was created from Adam, from man. But then every man is born through woman, right? You're born from your mom. So there's this interdependence upon each other. Not codependence. The world's kind of wrecked that phrase. But interdependence where we need one another. We need to be dependent upon each other. This is not an issue of superiority and inferiority, but it is an issue of order. The way that God has designed the husband and wife relationship. This might really grate against you culturally, and I understand that. And I'd encourage you to study it more, to really look inside of the order, inside of the Trinity. But when we accept God's design for marriage, it brings us into harmony because this is the way that we're made, right? 
I don't know a lot about cars and mechanics, but if the timing is off, right? Your spark plugs have timing. Your distributor has, has timing. If the, if the timing is off, the engine's going to run rough. But if that distributor is working correctly and your, your timing's right on, on your engine and your spark plugs are firing the way that it should, you're going to have harmony in your engine. It's, it's going to work, right? And the same in marriage. Not that there won't be difficult times, but there's going to be a harmony that you enjoy as you accept the roles, as you accept the design that God has given for, for marriage. So judge among yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her hair and with her head uncovered. Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it's glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. So Paul's letting us know, I need to deal with this inside of the church of Corinth and the culture that they're living in. These are the timeless truths and principles from this discussion that that carry forward, serve one another, understand God's design inside of marriage, but this is not necessarily a custom that needs to go across all churches. So we don't have to apply this in a, a legalistic way, right? I think in the Lord there's freedom, guys. If you want to have longer hair, be blessed, right? Ladies, if you want to have shorter hair, be blessed, but understand the heart of, of what is being taught and uh, declared here. Well, guys, I got through those first 16 verses. Welcome back, you know. It's one of the harder sections of scripture to teach as a pastor, so. Verse 17, now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you since you come together not for better, but for the worse. How tragic, how sad that believers would get together Their gathering would bring more destruction than edification, than construction. And the reason is, is because they're not considering one another. They're not serving one another. They're being selfish in their dress. They're being selfish at the communion table instead of serving each other. One of the ways this selfishness is being expressed is in division. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it. For there must also be fractions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Paul comes back to this. He addressed it earlier in the epistle. There's division among you. They're coming to the Lord's table, but there's disagreements with other believers. And sometimes inside of the family of God, there will be disagreements. And those disagreements are unreconciled and you can feel the tension inside of the room, inside of, of the gathering. And you can feel the tension as people are taking communion together. And communion, Christ's sacrifice, his broken body, his shed blood, brings us together. And it's God's heart to bring reconciliation. And it involves difficult conversations and humility and forgiveness But that wasn't taking place inside of the church of of Corinth. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. So even though they say they're having communion, even though they, they say they're having the Lord's Supper, it's not the Lord's Supper from God's perspective. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. So here they are coming in, 
and taking communion together, and it would be a meal that they would, would celebrate. It looks different than how we celebrate communion today. It'd be the agape feast. And some would eat all of the food while leaving others to be hungry. This breaks basic potluck etiquette, doesn't it? Right? If you're at a 4th of July picnic and it's served buffet style and you're in the first half of the line, you don't load up your plate with three or four pieces of chicken, take half the watermelon, say, hey, Lord bless you guys, you know, really appreciate your, your friendship. Proper etiquette is to say, I'll take a smaller amount, make sure everybody's fed. Then if everybody's fed, it's free game, right? There's, there's enough to, to go back for, for seconds. So some are being really selfish and going through saying, I'm going to make sure that I've got everything I need. But there's other people that didn't get anything, right? They, they weren't able to have food at all. And then, and then they're hungry. You have someone else then who's drunk at the Lord's Supper. They're gathering together with believers. They're entering into the celebration. But they take it too far and they find themselves being in a place where they're drunk. One thing that I think is interesting is for us as we take uh, communion today in, in most churches, it's very, very somber, which there's an element of that where communion is, is very somber. And we'll see, we need to be examining ourselves. But we maybe have erred on the side where we miss the celebration. We, we miss the fact that at the Lord's table, there is celebration. There's forgiveness to be embraced There's the joy of the Lord that he's the lifter of our head. There's the joy of the Lord that he's coming back. There's the joy of the Lord that we're in right relationship uh, with each other. So there should be a somber moment in in communion, but there should also be celebration. So they've erred on on excess with celebration. We've maybe erred on excess of being overly somber. Does that make sense? And not entering into the joy of the Lord at communion. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. They may have not realized it, but they have begun to despise one another. The church of God is not the building. The church of God is the people that God dwells in. And their actions are showing that they're despising one another. And Paul says, don't you have homes? Make sure that you eat food at home so you're not coming here in this place where you're really hungry. Now he gives us this instruction on communion. It does break my heart a little bit this morning that we can't celebrate communion together. Because after studying this section of scripture, man, we should, right? We really should be celebrating communion together. With, with COVID and wanting to respect everybody's health, it's not a possibility right now. But I think the Lord's in it, and this is why. Because many times we think we've got to be in this building, in this place, to take communion. Like how many times have you taken communion outside of a church building? Why is that? You can take communion today at home, and I'm going to encourage you to do that. That every single one of us would get some bread, some juice— and take communion. Take communion with your family. Take it by yourself. Maybe FaceTime a a friend that you know is isolated, another believer that hasn't had communion. Say, hey, let's let's take communion together. And we've limited communion to here. Maybe God will use this to celebrate communion inside of, of our homes. 
So here's the instruction on communion. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. Paul is sharing what he has received from Christ. He's quoting Christ here. This is the Christian life. As Jesus pours into our lives, then we're able to pour into other people's lives. That the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. These are the last moments of Christ's life. He's moments from being arrested, from Judas betraying him, from Peter denying him, being put on trial and crucified. He wants to have this special time with the disciples. It's his last teaching moment. And he uses the broken bread to point to his broken body. The disciples no doubt would remember this moment where Jesus broke the bread and then moments later was broken upon the cross for them. He washed the disciples' feet. He served Judas. He served Peter, the one who was going to betray them. And this is what he declared. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. To take and eat, to take the bread and eat. With communion, there's an element where it's practical. We put the bread into our mouths and we begin to eat the bread. It's crushed in our our mouths. And Christ is the bread of life. And he was broken for us. It's a symbol of his body that was crushed for us. And the emphasis here is this is my body which is broken for you. For you. God wants us to make it personal when we are taking communion. The Father loved us enough to send the Son. Jesus loved us enough to submit himself to the cross, that that you are loved by God to the point where he gave his son for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We're, We're looking back upon the cross. Many times in our relationship with the Lord, we get off track or we get distracted. As the church as a whole, we lose sight of what our priority should be. Guys, our whole relationship with Christ, past present and future hinges on the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The cross of Jesus Christ is not the beginning point and then you're done. The cross of Jesus Christ is every point. Every day of our lives, we need the sacrifice of Jesus. Not that he continues to die perpetually, but we rest upon the fact that Jesus' body was broken for us. And we remember that. And we celebrate that and we hold on to that. This morning, we need to remember that we're loved by God. We need to remember that Jesus loved us enough to be broken for us. And his broken body and shed blood pays the price for sin. Brings us into fellowship with God that the power of sin is broken in our lives. This is the table, the place where we meet with our our Savior and receive his comfort. Do this in remembrance of me. Remembrance is powerful, isn't it? To remember. I have some pictures of my family in my office. I was looking at them this week and it it just hit me. I was having a sentimental moment and all these sweet memories that I have with with Amber and the kids. And it was powerful. It, It moved me, right? God wanted the children of Israel to remember. When they came out of bondage in Egypt celebrated the first Passover, God says, once a year on this day, I want you to get your families together and celebrate the Passover feast. I want you to remember 
my deliverance for you. I want every generation to know my faithfulness to bring you out of bondage. The children of Israel are coming into the promised land. God stops up the Jordan, the first steps into the promised land were steps of faith by the priest. And there was one man from each of the 12 tribes of Israel that was picked, that was chosen to grab the largest stone possible. You know they picked the buffest guys of the tribe, right? I mean, th- that whole point was to get the, the biggest stone possible. From the pastoral staff, we would have picked Pastor Dan Hooker. It's like, you're our representation, right? So the 12 strongest guys, they each get a rock and they pile them together so that future generations would remember that kids would go, Dad, what's up with those, those rocks there? Well, that was when God brought us into to the promised land. But unfortunately, one of the things that Israel did wrong is they forgot God. How do you forget God? And the idea of forgetting God was not that they misplaced something. I tend to be forgetful with where I put my keys, where I put my phone. On several occasions, Pastor Robert has found my Bible in some weird spot and has had to return it to me, right? I recently got an Apple Watch and it has a feature here where it will ding my phone if I don't know where my phone is. It's worth, this is worth it just for that, right? Oh, that, my phone's up in the, the bedroom. That's not the way that Israel forgot God. It's that they willfully put God out of their mind. Sometimes in our rebellion and our sin, we want to stop thinking about God because it's too for, convicting. So we intentionally try to put God out of our, our mind. Maybe you've had a season like that in your relationship with the Lord. And so God is calling us to this place of remembrance. He's calling us to not forget the sacrifice of Christ and to really allow our hearts to be anchored there. In verse 25, in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The disciples would be familiar with this word covenant. It's throughout the Old Testament. God's contract, his oath, the way that he related with the children of Israel in the Old Covenant was based upon works. If you obey, you're blessed. If you disobey, you're cursed. Many of us still operate with God under an Old Covenant theology. We think that God loves us, that he blesses us, that we have favor with him when we do our part. When we read our Bible, when we tithe, when we don't sin, man, I have God's blessing. But man, I sinned this morning. I I failed. I've been compromising. God doesn't love me. I don't have God's favor in my life. And the new covenant, the old covenant, was preparing us for the new covenant where we would rely upon God's grace. God's contract with us now is through the blood of Jesus. Where Jesus hung upon the cross and he declared, it is finished. It is paid in full. How do we know as believers that we have eternal life? Because of the power of the blood of Jesus. How do we know that our sins are forgiven? Because of the power of the blood of Jesus. How do we have confidence that we can overcome sin? Because of the power of the blood of Jesus. And that's what we rely upon. We do this in remembrance of the blood of Jesus that was shed for us. It's grace. It's God's kindness. It's his unconditional love. And when we really understand the grace of God, the finished work through the blood of Jesus, it inspires us to want to live for the Lord. Amen? Amen? Because we're not living for his blessing. 
We're not living for his favor. We've already received that, and we simply get to respond to his blessing and respond to his favor. I want to attempt to go a little bit deeper for just a moment. When we come to the communion table, we're being invited to spend time with the Lord. A table is a place of fellowship. And as we meet with the Lord, we look back and and we remember what he's done for us. We proclaim his death until he comes. We we examine our hearts for, for sin. And we give to the Lord what is in our hearts. And we confess that sin and we receive his forgiveness. But also, we're able to go to God at the communion table and give him our sorrow. I'm reading a book right now called A Grace Disguised. It's a painful book. Jerry Sitzer in 2003 went with his family to an Indian reservation. They homeschooled their kids and it was a field trip. Spent the day there at the reservation. We're driving home at night, two-lane road. A drunk driver crosses over into their lane, hits their minivan, and in a moment, his mom died. His mom was with them on the trip. His wife died, and then also his four-year-old daughter died. He survived, and his other three children survived. Lost his mom, his wife, and his daughter in a moment, and is left as a single dad. Three years later, he writes this book, A Grace Disguised. And this is what he writes about communion. He says, The incarnation has left a permanent imprint on me. For three years now, I have cried at every communion service I've attended. I've not only brought my pain to God, but also felt as never before the pain God suffered for me. I mourned before God because I know that God has mourned too. God understands suffering because God suffered. One of the encouraging things about communion is Jesus suffered in his body. He chose to suffer. His body was brutalized in pain upon the cross. He experienced betrayal. He had a crushed soul. And for us to be able at the communion table to bring our sorrow to God, bring our pain before God, and also understand that he knows pain to be able to receive his comfort. So whether it's sin or it's discouragement, it's an opportunity to focus on Christ and to truly bear our souls before him. This is where communion gets exciting. This is where some celebration comes in. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. In the Psalms, it says that God is the lifter of our head. You cannot take communion without having your head lifted unless you use a straw and that's just weird right? You lift your head in celebrating God's forgiveness, but every time you take communion as well, you're proclaiming, Jesus, you're coming. You're going to rapture your church. You're going to take us up in a, in a moment. You're going to literally put your feet on the Mount of Olives. You're going to rule and reign on this earth, and we get to live in hope and celebration of the second coming of Jesus Christ. I hope your heart is yearning for the second coming of Jesus Christ more than ever before. As we see more and more chaos in our world, it should cause us to look forward to the rapture of the church, to look forward to the second coming of Jesus Christ. We get to proclaim his death until he comes. Celebrate his forgiveness. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Unfortunately, many have misunderstood communion and saying, 
well, I'm not worthy to take communion, so I'll let communion pass. How do we give worth to the Lord's Supper? We give worth by pointing to how Jesus is worthy. If we wait till we're worthy, we're going to be waiting a really long time to come and take communion. This is not based upon our worthiness. In context, this is the church of Corinth being drunk at the Lord's table. They're not taking it seriously. They're not stopping to really reflect upon Christ. When we've sinned, when we've struggled, when we're not in the place that we should be, that should be the exact moment that we should be coming to the Lord's table. Amen? To meet with the Lord, to get right with the Lord, to receive his forgiveness afresh. So don't let the enemy keep you from the Lord's table. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks a judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. So we are to look within as we take communion. The best way that I know to explain this is trash day in our home. Wednesday is trash day. It's a glorious morning, right? Because we go through the house, all the trash cans, get the trash out, get it out to the curb. With a family of six, if you forget trash day, it is no good, right? Because then you got two weeks of trash to try to be able to, to deal with. So as we examine ourselves, it's spiritual trash day. It's inviting the Holy Spirit to go through the crevices of our hearts and our lives and to confess those things before the Lord. And as we confess those things before the Lord, then what does it say? So let him eat. So let him drink. And receive God's forgiveness. And receive God's provision in overcoming sin. Verse 30, for this reason many are weak and sick among you and many sleep. This is a consequence for not taking communion in a worthy manner. This is so serious to the Lord that he says if you don't do this in a worthy manner, then there's a consequence that comes. But remember, to do it in a worthy manner is to give worth to Christ. For if we would judge ourselves, we'd not be judged. But when we're judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. This is an encouragement to do reflection in your heart and life for confession and repentance so that we don't have to receive God's correction. Better to repent and confess before God has to correct us. Now, don't get discouraged with God's correction because it is evidence that you're his, his child. Verse 33, Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another, but if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment, and the rest I will set in order when I come. We look at the church of Corinth and sometimes we go, how could they? How could they be so concerned with themselves that there's no modesty? How could they be so concerned with themselves that they're drunk at the Lord's table? But be careful. There is a mindset that slips into church where we start to think it's about us. We come to gatherings together with other believers and we're only thinking about ourselves. And that's going to lead to destruction. It's going to lead to what we see here. When we gather together with believers in any context, our minds should be on the Lord and how do I serve? How do I build up other believers? How do my attitudes and actions affect other believers? But here's the big takeaway this morning is get alone with the Lord and get to his table. Get alone to the Lord and get to his table. 
Find some time, take some time this afternoon to sit and reflect and remember his broken body that was shed for you, his blood that was shed for you, and enjoy it. And enjoy that time with the Lord. And celebrate the Lord's coming. In confidence, proclaim his death till he comes. Would you stand with me? We're going to pray together. Father, we thank you that you love us. We thank you for your grace that you have provided our greatest need in your son, the forgiveness of sin. If we're doubting your love, if we're doubting your faithfulness, we do remember. We remember, Jesus, your broken body. We remember your shed blood. We proclaim your death till you come. We're looking forward to your return. We pray for your imminent return. Will you come and set things right? We want you to search us. We want you to know us and We bring the broken areas of our lives to you. We bring our sorrow to you, our disappointment to you, our sin to you. So God, take us deeper in you. Protect us from a selfish mindset. As a church, may we be centered upon you and centered upon serving each other. God, would you bless everyone who's listening online today? Would you bless everyone that was able to come to the sanctuary? May we be encouraged as we go. We love you in Jesus' name, amen.